Thank you for joining us today. My name is Esse Werke and I'm the director of MPI's Human Services Initiative and your moderator for today's webinar. Our webinar today is called Bridging the Digital Divide for US Children and Immigrant Families. Before we get started, let me review a few housekeeping items. First, if you have any technical or access challenges, please contact us at events at migrationpolicy.org or by phone at 202-266-1929. At the end of our program, we will have time for discussions and Q&A. That will not be by voice. It will be either by chat or writing events at migrationpolicy.org or if you prefer by tweet at migration policy or hashtag MPI discuss. Today's webinar is being recorded. The audio will be available at our website at www.migrationpolicy.org backslash events. You can also visit our website for a related report titled Advancing Digital Equity Among Immigrant Origin Youth and we'll be mentioning that a few times during our program today. So let's get started. I'm so honored to bring to you the program for today's webinar. Our agenda includes brief opening remarks from yours truly, as well as our three panelists, Jenna Robbins, who's the Manager of Professional Development Services at the International's Network for Public Schools, Carmen Bordea, who is the Digital Learning Program Coordinator at the Office of Global Michigan, and Jisoo Sung, the Broadband Advisor for the Federal Office of Educational Technology within the US Department of Education. The webinar features findings from our new report, as I mentioned before, and the authors are myself, as well as my colleagues, Lily Hinkle, Anna DeDefour, and Valerie Lacarte. In my opening remarks, I will share a few highlights, takeaways, recommendations from the report. In Jenna's remarks, she will identify lessons learned from several schools during the pandemic-induced remote learning periods. Carmen from the Office of Global Michigan will identify uh, the digital learning program as a case example for other immigrant-serving organizations and state governments to consider their role in advancing digital equity. And we'll close out the panel with Jisoo, who will highlight very timely opportunities to engage with federal partners in advancing digital equity, and specifically some provisions from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. And as I noted before, we will have a Q&A conversation at the end. So please prepare your questions for email, chat, or tweet. I've introduced myself briefly already, but for those who are interested to learn a little bit more about my background, my bio is available here on this slide. Um, I won't go over it, but it's there and it's available for anyone interested. On the next slide, uh, we'll begin the highlights from the report by framing what we mean by digital equity and why it's so important. So first, digital equity means having full access to the devices, internet, and training that 
are needed in order to participate fully in society, whether that means education, work, health and mental health, um, voting or other civic engagement opportunities. The idea is full participation since we live in a digital world. And the importance of that is really rooted in the history of this country and different decisions that have been made along the way to exclude certain people from access to important resources such as education, housing, health, and all the other items that I mentioned before. Digital access is similar to that. And though the exclusion may not be as intentional, it is nonetheless just as impactful on people who don't have access. And we see the consequences of that both now and we can anticipate it for the future. So digital equity really is the story of the haves and the have nots. And in our report, we point out the interplay between immigration status, school engagement and digital access. And the underlying message here is what can be done in order to strengthen collaborations, AKA build bridges between the fields of education, immigrant integration and telecommunications. So all of that is meant as a preview to level set the conversation. I'll dive now a little bit more in detail to the methods, key findings, and then the recommendations from the report. I discussed the, the purpose already. We wanted to identify promising practices for digi increasing digital access and literacy. And we focused on uh, high school age students defined as 15 to 17 years old, who are either immigrants themselves or have at least one immigrant parent. We looked at data from the Census Bureau. We interviewed 32 experts from the field, including teachers, school administrators, refugee resettlement professionals, librarians, IT professionals, and others. We also focused on um, six states, and you see those are listed on the slide, Arizona, California, Georgia, Maryland, Tennessee, Texas, and Utah. Our intention was to focus largely on the Southern and Southwest regions of the US. All of these uh, efforts led to eight findings and 11 recommendations, not including a key finding from our data analysis, which I'll turn to next. There's a lot here on this slide, so let's break it down a bit. We're looking on the left side at access to broadband and on the right side, access to computers. The leftmost column shows the different populations that we identified and compared with levels of access. The key takeaway here is that while children of immigrants have slightly less access to broadband and computers in the way that the Census Bureau defines it, children or youth who are unauthorized have significantly less access. So whether they're in school or not, they have less access compared to other immigrant youth and children of immigrants. Now, when you dive deeper into the unauthorized youth population, it becomes evident that when they are not enrolled in school, their access decreases significantly. So one message here is that the unauthorized population have the least access. The second message here is that schools 
are the great neutralizer when it comes to access to broadband and computers. A third point to highlight from our data analysis is that we did use Census Bureau data, which means we use their definitions for this part of the report. When the Census Bureau looks at broadband access, they include cellular data, which we all know is not oh so reliable. I'm glad I don't have to rely on it right now in this moment. Similarly, when the Census Bureau asks questions about computers, they really use the term loosely to include tablets and smartphones. And if you can imagine attending a virtual class on your smartphone all day long, how difficult that would be. So if we narrowed the definitions of broadband and computers, these numbers might look a little bit different. And that's a very important point to make. Going to the next slide, I'll quickly review four of the eight findings in the report. One key takeaway is that lack of access to reliable, affordable internet was the biggest barrier to youth participating in school. Now, schools did all that they could uh, to provide hotspots. I mean, they really went the extra mile, and I, I have a feeling Jenna might talk about that a little bit later. But despite these noble efforts, because they weren't high-speed fixed internet plans that were affordable and reliable, a lot of times it wasn't enough for distance learning. And so there were interruptions in the education of immigrant origin youth as well as other youth. A second key finding is that the learning management systems um, like Google Classroom or um, Schoology were not user-friendly for two reasons. One, they're primarily in English and the translations aren't all that reliable. And secondly, they're designed for people who have a lot of experience on websites rather than, um, or on computers rather than smartphones or tablets. A third key finding has to do with language access. So it's one thing if, you, if the students speak Spanish or Swahili or another language that uses the Roman alphabet, at least they can recognize the characters. But if a student speaks Burmese or Arabic or Dari or Pashto, for example, then even the characters on the keyboards would seem foreign and be very difficult to track with. And so that is another area where their teachers demonstrated a lot of creativity and persistence and relied on pictorial and phonic teaching tools in order to bridge the language and digital divides. Finally, a fourth finding from our report is that the most important digital literacy skills for parents and for students are how to use email, since that's the primary communication mode with schools, and how to use video conferencing platforms because once they could use Zoom or another platform, and especially if they could share screens, everything else could be taught almost as if it were in person. There's certainly a lot more findings, but in the interest of time, I'll transition now to the recommendations. As I noted, the report touches on 11 recommendations to a range of stakeholders from federal government to uh, immigrant serving organizations and local communities. Here, I'm um, just grouped those recommendations um, at a high level to give you a flavor of what we've um, recommended. So here there's an opportunity for federal leadership 
both with the White House Task Force on New Americans, including digital literacy as a key component of integration, and through the National uh, Telecommunications and Information Administration, adding a focus on immigrants in their existing forums. Second, uh, there's a need for faster and more affordable internet, and the Federal Communications Commission has a role in incentivizing or requiring internet service providers to provide that. Third, there, are, um, there is a need for assessments. And the schools, of course, can play a role in assessing newcomers' um, digital skills, if not at enrollment, because that's a busy time, perhaps soon thereafter. But the Office of Refugee Resettlement can also influence state refugee programs to assess uh, digital needs, just like they would for transportation, childcare, or another support service. Fourthly, in terms of digital literacy training, there are several opportunities to build that into existing programs, whether it's domestic cultural orientation or educational activities for unaccompanied children in federal custody or digital inclusion programming um, funded for navigators and technical assistance providers in the refugee resettlement network. Last and certainly not least, probably most sensitive uh, in terms of timing is for state refugee coordinators and new offices of Americans to get involved with their governor offices in developing state digital equity plans. I won't say a lot more about that, but I wanna underscore bold and color that and note that Jisoo may be raising it again in his comments. So if you're interested in more details, please take a look at our report. Feel free to reach out with questions. Uh, I'll turn now to Jenna Robbins, who, um, as we said before, is the program, uh, is the manager of professional development services at International's Network for Public Schools. In this role, Jenna is responsible for the visioning, design, and implementation of professional development experiences that build teacher and school capacity via best practices. So with no further ado, Jenna, I turn things over to you. Thank you, S.A., and good afternoon, everybody. I'm Jenna. As S.A. said, I'm the Manager of Professional Development Services for the Internationals Network. Next slide. Um, so we are a national school development and support organization that works to ensure that immigrant multilingual language learners have access to quality public education. And we're a network of 28 high schools and academies all over the country, and we serve over 9,000 students that come from 70 different language groups. So as you can see, our students come from all over the world. And so we are pretty uniquely situated to add to this conversation about bridging the digital divide as 100% of our students are immigrants or refugees. Um, and our schools have been working with and innovating and seeing success with this population since 1985. And this includes success during remote learning when the pandemic hit. And during that time, we learned a lot about supporting our students and building their digital literacy skills. And many of those lessons are very applicable to now. Now the students are back in person as we continue doing this work of moving towards digital equity for this population. 
So how do we promote digital equity in our schools? First, we support our schools in creating engaging, culturally relevant, and supportive curriculum for our students. So this includes language-rich experiences, project-based learning, collaborative learning, culturally responsive and sustaining education. And as well, our schools are really special learning communities where students feel safe and loved and supported. And this is really the foundation for everything that we do. And it ensures that our students are able to learn content, English, and skills. And this includes digital literacy skills. In class, students are provided with authentic hands-on experiences so that they are able to learn the content knowledge that they need to graduate, get a career, go to college. Um, and in their classes, they are given lots of opportunities to build on their background knowledge and experiences. And this includes learning in and through their home languages while acquiring English and new content knowledge. So in the case of digital literacy and digital tools, Students will be learning these tools in the context of the project and the content that they're engaging in. So they have a reason to be learning how to use these tools and then they'll often use these new tools and skills in order to showcase what they've learned in their content classes. So this can mean that students learn how to build websites, they record videos, they record and publish podcasts, maybe they're engaged in graphic design. And so they're learning all of these that are digital literacy skills in the context of their content, and then they get a real world practice with applying these skills to their classes. Um, so some things that we learned from remote learning are that many students enter high school with limited experiences with digital tools from their pre-migration lives. And so teachers have this really huge task of addressing students' needs across a wide spectrum of skills and background knowledge and experiences. And what we found is that the schools that were the most successful in supporting students were the schools that had strong instructional practices, school structures, they had rich curriculum, and they had a strong school community. And so again, as I stated before, this is really the foundation to doing this work well, and it was especially important during the pandemic. We also found that asynchronous learning opportunities were really necessary for ensuring that all students have success. There were so many reasons why students would be absent, why they wouldn't be able to come to their synchronous classes. Like Essay mentioned before, maybe Wi-Fi wasn't working, maybe they didn't have a device, but also students often have to work, they have family responsibilities, and so sometimes they would miss their synchronous classes. And so providing asynchronous learning opportunities um, gave students more opportunities to remain connected to their school and also to be able to catch up on the content that they had missed. Many of our schools also have groups called advisories, which are small learning communities where students meet consistently in a small group with one teacher. And these small groups ensure that students have one adult in the school community that they know well and that they can trust and who cares about them. And during the pandemic, these spaces were often used to do extra tech support. So in the beginning of the year, it was how do you log into Google Classroom? How do you access your work? And then over the course of the year, it focused more to how do you complete your work, um, giving students um, formative assessments, helping them to make sure that they were on track with their work. 
Um, and this has been continued now that students are back in person. We also saw really clearly that teachers learn best from each other. So just as students come to high school with a wide range of experiences of digital literacy, our teachers also have a really wide range of experiences with digital literacy. And if we're going to expect teachers to support students, then we also need to support the teachers in learning how to use these tools and how to support their students in learning them. Um, and so creating networks where teachers can share what's working, where they can share projects, they can share ideas for different ways that students can showcase their work, where they can just support each other in learning how to use the tools themselves can be a super powerful professional development opportunity for the teachers. And then finally, we saw that in a lot of cases, schools were the sole providers of tech tools and access. So teachers were walking around to students' homes and dropping off laptops and tablets and hotspots. And if that hadn't happened, then students would not have been able to get online. So finally, some recommendations. Um, our students need access to rich and relevant curriculum, opportunities to practice all of their languages and a safe and loving school community. And without that, it's really difficult to help students find success. And that includes with digital literacy. Invest time in finding out about students' prior knowledge and experiences, and then create curriculum that connects to and builds on these experiences. As I said before, embed digital literacy in the context of authentic projects. Um, a digital tool is great, but if students don't know how to apply it to their life or how to use it in a real world context, they just don't really necessarily care about learning it. Um, and if they can't apply it, then there isn't really a point. So embedding that learning in authentic projects both helps students build their capacity in applying this tool and also gives them a reason and motivation to learn. Plan for and implement asynchronous learning opportunities for students who are not able to attend synchronous classes. Create learning opportunities within the school that can support students with instruction. Um, create networks for your educators so that they can continue to share and learn from each other. And then finally, form partnerships with CBOs and service providers so that you can help connect more students so that they're able to get online when they need to. And I think I'm out of time and I think that is it. Thank you so much, Jenna, that was wonderful. And as schools begin to think about their emergency preparedness plans, their pandemic plans, these are excellent tips to keep in mind. So thank you for sharing those lessons learned. Let's turn now to Carmen Bordea, who again is the Digital Literacy and Learning Program Coordinator in the Office of Global Michigan. Carmen has held multiple roles in different nonprofit organizations for 15 years including working as a local refugee resettlement and social services provider for 11 years and teaching English as a second language to immigrant adults and children for 15 years. Carmen, welcome to the panel and we're ready to hear from you. Thank you, Essay. Thank you for the introduction and good afternoon, everyone. You heard a few words about my background and I would like to add that for new Americans like myself, the journey to success does not fully depend on where you're from or your past experiences, not even on your personal strength and assertiveness, but also on acceptance and support from all of you. The work that you all do 
makes a positive impact and is the very reason many of us thrive. So thank you. This presentation will tell you about the Office of Global Michigan's Digital Literacy and Learning Program, of which I'll refer to as DLL, what we do, who we serve, and the approach we took in providing those services. I'll move on to talk about lessons learned and how we make things fun. Based on those findings, I'll share our best practices and lastly, some additional projects we're working on. Next slide. The DLL program works with newly arrived refugee families. Based on individual and families short and long-term goals, the program provides English language learning, digital skills training, access to electronic devices and internet, increase in social integration, and support in accessing available services. We work with the end in mind, which is to increase social integration and self-sufficiency through improvement in English language and digital skills. To do this, we prepare the groundwork by having conversations with service providers across the state and learn for, from those providing direct work in those areas. Next slide. Learners in our programs are assessed on their current language and digital skills, and also we identify social integration gaps. The DLL program uses a Voxy engine, a skill-focused virtual English language learning platform. Those using this platform are assessed on their proficiency by using the Voxy's own assessment tool. Young learners and those who are not yet ready to use this learning tool are assessed using other English language tests and are referred to existing ESL classes. To measure social integration and digital skills, we develop surveys which are available in 11 languages and can be completed in person or online through Google Forms. The social skills survey is looking at the level of comfort in managing personal life, being school and social activities for children, or work and family support for adults. For digital skills survey, we address five main areas of knowledge, which are identifying devices and technology, information, digital content creation, communication and collaboration through digital technologies, social integration, also through uses of technology and digital skills, and internet safety. Existing digital skills assessment like North Star and Digital Skills Accelerator require at least basic digital and language skills. And we found that a survey that can be translated into learner's native language works best for the population we currently serve. Let's look at a few keys, key lessons learned. We collected and analyzed data and outlined a few key findings. First is that families learn better together. We had classes that were separated by age groups, but children joined their parents in the class and adults joined youth classes. And we asked for feedback, which demonstrates that families like to be together. We introduced family fun activities like virtual trips to museums and the zoo. We added some educational games. Cyberbullying and scams are a family matter. And discussing it together in those virtual classes brings awareness of this issue and lays a more comfortable ground to openness and trust. 
through virtuals and self-paced learning, we saw an increased retention for employed learners and children in school. Most of our classes for children are in the summer or during uh, school breaks. Providing access to online learning removed barriers such as transportation, childcare, time outside home, and also health concerns during the recent pandemic. We experimented virtual classes by native language rather than level or age group. And for those with low or no English language skills, we found that attending a digital literacy virtual class where others speak the same language and often we invited interpreters gives the group the opportunity to be more engaged. Although everyone is welcome, language-focused classes seem to be more effective among those with lower English proficiency. I would like to share some additional work that we do. Recently, we developed a vast network of partners in the work and are finalizing a statewide resource library, which we will share with our learners and also with our community partners. We build strong partnerships with educational institutions, libraries, um, Michigan Works employment agencies, local employers, um, school impact and employment programs. And uh, through those collaborations, refugees have better access to continued education, meaningful employment for adults, and faster self-sufficiency for the families. Michigan is among the top destinations for refugee resettlement. Our state is actively addressing the digital divide among areas and groups, including refugees and immigrants, and ensuring that all students have access to high quality instruction. Through our DLL program, we have a voice at the table bringing a light to specific needs of refugees and immigrants. We continue to advocate that the unique needs of new Americans will remain a topic in addressing digital equity and that service providers consider programming that includes families as a unit in addition to programs that are specific to youth and um, adults. Thank you for the opportunity to share the work that we do here in Michigan and for the work that you all do in supporting digital inclusion. Thank you very much, Carmen, for those lessons learned that could only be learned through experience. Your points about organizing digital classes with families and by language rather than digital skill level is quite interesting. And we've already received at least one comment in the chat um, wanting to learn more about your work. So thank you very much, Carmen. Let's turn now to Jisoo. As I mentioned before, he is the Broadband Advisor at the Office of Educational Technology within the U.S. Department of Education. There, he advises officials on policies and initiatives aimed at closing the digital divide, especially for historically underserved students, including immigrants and children of immigrants, many of whom are people of color. Before that, uh, Jisoo was the Senior Policy Advisor at ISTE, where he led research, analysis, and communication of federal, state, and local policy issues. Without any further ado, Jisoo, I'll turn things over to you. Well, thank you, 
so much for inviting me onto this panel. And as an immigrant myself, I really appreciate the work that you all are doing on behalf of immigrant students. It was really great hearing from the fellow panelists here about insights and experiences, both from the local and state levels. I was actively taking notes as you were talking about your lessons and takeaways. Um, as I mentioned, uh, my name is Jisoo Song, and I serve as a broadband advisor at the Office of Vet Tech, or OET, within the U.S. Department of Education. And my role is to collaborate with agencies across the federal government to help maximize the impact of various programs and policies around broadband access. And I work with various external groups like the Migration Policy Institute to regularly listen to the needs of the field and take note of the progress that's being made on this issue. For those who are unfamiliar, OET sits within the Office of Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development, or OPEPD, within the U.S. Department of Ed. And our mission is to establish a vision for how technology can be used uh, to transform learning, enable any time, all, uh, all the time learning. So uh, we achieved it in a variety of ways, uh, from guidance and policy development to strategic investments and coalition building. Next slide, please. So before we dive into what our office is doing to support digital equity, I want to provide a little bit of context. Um, the pandemic, as we know, really highlighted uh, the impact of the digital divide, especially from home. And research shows time and time again that students who lack this fundamental access to the internet um, exhibit lower digital skills attainment, homework completion rates, GPA, standardized test scores, college completion, and a number of other factors. And we also know from recent data that this divide disproportionately impacts certain student communities, including students from immigrant backgrounds, as we saw in a previous slide at the top of the hour. Fortunately, there's a bit of a good news. Um, $65 billion included in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, or BIL, bill to help significantly close the digital divide. And when we think about broadband access, we can envision it from three different perspectives. First is availability, right? Do learners and their families, caregivers, live in areas where there is that physical infrastructure, right? To sufficient coverage uh, of de to deliver high-speed internet, reliable wireless or wired access. And the programs like the Broadband Equity Access and Development Program or the BEAD program that's included in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law provides states with funds for this critical um, physical infrastructure. Next, you have affordability. Can learners and their families and caregivers pay for the total cost of maintaining that high-speed, reliable connectivity? And the FCC's Affordable Connectivity Program provides qualifying households with discounts on their monthly uh, connectivity bills. And the third piece is adoption. Can learners and their families, caregivers, obtain regular access to the internet and tools to facilitate technology-enabled learning opportunities? This is the issue that the Office of Ed Tech and the Department of Education will be exploring a lot more um, in the coming year. Next slide, please. Even when we've deployed um, availability and affordability solutions, we have to make sure that we're solving for the human level barriers that often inhibit uh, adoption by the end user, right? We know that any technology innovation from broadband to whatever tool that doesn't account for this variable um, doesn't have a chance for success at scale. So as states plan their investments using dollars from the bipartisan infrastructure law, for example, through the development of their state digital equity plans, they need to navigate these adoption issues such as how will states partner with communities to co-create effective digital inclusion strategies, programs, resources, 
and generate buy-in from the public? How will they strategically increase uh, public awareness and understanding of these digital inclusion programs and resources? How will they actively help learners, families, and caregivers navigate complexities in signing up for accessing those digital inclusion programs and resources? And how will they build necessary capacities like digital literacy to directly empower stakeholders in taking uh, full advantage of the connectivity? And there might be many more adoption barriers. And we know that the way that each barrier plays out in different learning communities may look different. So we've launched a new initiative at OAT called our Digital Equity Education Roundtables, or DEAR for short, uh, to inform state leaders about these human level adoption related barriers that learners and families furthest from digital opportunities face on a daily basis. Um, we just concluded an initial um, discovery phase of this project, conducting a literature scan, holding a series of listening sessions to better understand the general landscape of digital equity here in the United States. Um, from, from March until about May, we'll be hosting a series of roundtable conversations, hearing from organizations that directly represent um, learner communities that are furthest away from digital opportunities. And we'll be using those insights gathered through these events uh, to develop a guidance resource that informs state leaders about these adoption barriers, strategies to get around them, and then highlight example stories of success as well. We're hoping to release this guidance uh, resource in early fall in parallel to NTIA's rollout of some initial broadband funding so that state leaders have our resource readily available as reference as they begin uh, developing their digital equity plans. We're also hoping to host a national summit event later this year to both announce uh, the launch of this guidance resource and to spur some uh, further community action and commitment aligned to this collective vision towards digital equity. So please be on the lookout for additional information from the Office of EdTech around this initiative. Uh, you can find out more about our initiative at tech.ed.gov slash DEER, D-E-E-R. I'll put the link in the chat in just a sec. We just did sort of a soft launch of our website where you can learn a little bit more about what we're trying to do, what uh, is our mechanism um, for doing it, and why we're doing it. So again, thank you so much for a chance to share what the Office of EdTech is doing, and I'll pass it back to you all. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jisoo. That was uh, very timely information and an opportunity for many people to get engaged. Now is the time since the guidance will come out in the fall as well as the funding. This is the question and answer portion of our webinar. As a reminder, the audio and video of today's webinar will be available on our website. And if there are any reporters on the call who are interested in more information, please contact Michelle Middlestadt. And the contact information is there on the slide for you, 202-266-1910 by phone or M-M-I-T-T-E-L-S-T-A-D-T at migrationpolicy.org. You can also sign up to receive updates from MPI. And again, check out our report advancing digital equity among immigrant origin youth. Now, if you have um, questions, we encourage you to put them in the chat or to email them to events at migrationpolicy.org or tweet them. I um, have seen a couple of comments in the chat. Um, there were requests for uh, Carmen's 
report or perhaps presentation. And we can make the, the slides of everyone's presentations available at the uh, after this webinar. Um, there was also a question about um, sharing the recording, which I believe I've addressed. And while we're, oh, we have our first question in from participants. Thank you, Carly. The question is, is anyone aware of digital skills assessment that is friendly for English, for English learners? Um, Jenna, Carmen, Jisoo, any thoughts on that? I'll chime in and say that um, we experimented different things and we um, found the solution of having a survey that asks direct questions that can be translated and learn what people don't know because other digital skills require to have at least basic skills in order to, um, to take this assessment. So if you're interested to learn more about this, please let us know. Excellent, thank you. And Jenna? Yeah, I'll just piggyback off of that, um, that we found that, you know, just starting the beginning of the year with a short survey on have, when have you used technology and what does that look like? And then also, what is your technological situation at home? Do you have a device? Does your family have one? How do you get on the internet, right? So just doing that inquiry to find out what's going on in your classroom is really helpful, um, but I don't know of any one particular assessment. And when I hear that, I hear opportunity for someone to create an assessment that's friendly to English learners. Other questions from participants? While we're waiting for the next question, Jisoo, I, I do have um, two questions that perhaps you can answer. One uh, has to do with the state digital equity plans and are there any, is there any funding associated with those plans? The second question has to do with the stories that you're collecting. If people do have exemplary stories, uh, how would they get them to your office? Yep, I'll answer the first part and then the second part. Yeah, um, one thing to note is I mentioned the state digital equity plans that are required under the Digital Equity Act. Um, that funding isn't run through the Department of Education. That's run through uh, our partners over at NTIA with the Department of Commerce. So we're working in uh, hand in hand with them. The Digital Equity Act is a $2.75 billion program as part of the broader $65 billion package that was included in the bipartisan infrastructure law. There's a bunch of little bits and pieces in there, but the very first uh, grant that will go out to states, I believe it's $60 million in total, don't quote me on that <laughs> figure, but um, it will that initial round of funding will go out to states later this year from our partners over at NTIA to help states begin uh, developing their state digital equity plans. Upon you know, upon the completion of that phase, the larger bulk of the funding will be received by states to begin implementing parts of their digital equity uh, plans. There's a third phase of the Digital Equity Act that, con uh, that considers uh, partnerships with nonprofits and other agencies that are involved in this work. Um, you can find out more about um, that program, the Digital Equity Act, at broadbandusa.gov. 
give me one second. Let me check the website, broadbandusa.ntia.doc.gov. I'll put that in the chat um, so that you all have the information. Your second question about stories. Yeah, as we develop our guidance resource around adoption, we're trying to highlight exemplary stories of states, localities, organizations that are really helping, um, you know, students that are uh, the most marginalized and furthest from digital opportunities, you know, bridge that adoption uh, barrier. So I was taking notes as Jenna and Carmen were speaking about the efforts on their end. We would love to hear from the field around additional stories of success that you all have. So I'll put my email in the chat if folks want to contact me and, you know, deliver their stories of success, uh, success in, you know, bridging that adoption barrier for immigrant students, undocumented youth, etc. So we'd love to hear your stories. Thank you, Jisoo. I look forward to contributing to that collection. We have a couple of questions in queue. One from um, Alex asking, for students without authorized status, are they excluded from federally funded programs, projects, and services? I will um, take a swing at responding to that, and others feel free to add on if you like. Um, that's a, a very good question and a very complicated question. The short answer is, Generally, uh, those students would not be eligible for um, federally funded benefit programs like TANF and Medicaid. There are some exceptions. Of course, of course they're eligible. Um, they have a right to attend public schools and there are some food assistance programs that they would be uh, potentially eligible for. Um, but it's a complicated answer and we'd happy, I'd be happy to follow up with you offline and provide a more detailed um, links to more detailed information. Another question, and I'm, I'm gonna see if Jenna and Carmen may be able to help respond to this one. This is from Kimberly and she notes that in, in the report and in my remarks, I mentioned that students and parents really would benefit from learning how to use email and video conferencing to communicate with schools? Well, her question is what happens if they don't know how to use those um, tools? How, who supports them and how does that get handled? So in the case of schools, um, oftentimes that responsibility falls on school staff to support the parents and families in learning how to log on. Um, oftentimes they'll help the families create email addresses so that they're able to receive messaging and updates from the school. Um, sometimes it's the parent coordinator, sometimes in schools that have advisories, the advisor is in charge of making sure that the families of their students are able to log in and um, get in touch and use email. Um, so it really, depends on the situation, but we've definitely seen that that responsibility falls on school staff. Yeah, I would like to add that in uh, Michigan, um, we have a program, School Impact Program, uh, which provides uh, liaisons for immigrant and refugee children who are in school and they assist with communication as well. Um, also, they provide translation and interpretation during parent-teacher parent conferences um, and also rely on, on school um, teachers and advisors. So in short, educators and community service providers are filling in the gap, but it's very ad hoc and there's a lot of variability state to state, city to city. 
and we're hoping that there can be more of a systemic solution to, to that. Thank you for the question, Kimberly. We have um, a question for Jisoo and also one for Carmen. So Jisoo, turning to you uh, again about the state digital equity plans, are those supposed to be delivered through the state departments? Uh, I presume departments of education or the non-governmental organizations. This is a question from Stein, Ontario. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned before, there's a bunch of different parts to the Digital Equity Act. Primarily, there's two different uh, programs, the State Digital Equity uh, Planning and Capacity Grant Program and the Digital Equity Competitive Grant Program. The State Digital Equity Planning Grant and the Capacity Building Grant, that will be uh, you know, administered by the governor's office and the partners that um, they uh, choose to work with. Right, so the governor's office will have a lot to say in what goes inside those digital equity plans, who they choose to work with, how they're going to implement it, etc. The other part of it, the digital equity competitive grant program, um, will be more targeted towards those um, NGOs, different local agencies that can help further, you know, implement the vision behind those state digital equity plans. Right, so different programs designed for different um, sectors and different communities. Um, also, I should mention NTIA is still undergoing some rulemaking around these programs. So what I'm talking about is what's in the statutory language. The actual rules around um, these programs will be further developed by our partners over at NTIA. I know they've held a couple of public listening sessions, had a public comment opportunity to help them develop the rules around these programs. So you might see um, items that are different from what I just mentioned or makes adjustments to them, makes them more clear. So please be on the lookout for the exact rules around these programs from uh, our partners over at NTIA. At the end of the day, it is a Department of Commerce program, but the Department of Education is doing our part to make sure that education becomes a central piece in the digital equity planning and implementation. Fantastic, thank you for that clarification. Uh, there's a question that might fit uh, Carmen, but others feel free to chime in. This is from Geneva, and the question is, how can translation and interpretation companies support the DLL program in Michigan or other um, in similar initiatives? Thank you for a good question, Geneva. So I would like to say that um, most case managers and liaisons that work in our program are multilingual. Um, we use them to provide interpretation and, and uh, translation. I would like, also like to say that sometimes the refugees that we serve end up working and providing those services as well. Um, we have a state contract with language companies and um, also use language lines. With the recent Afghan national arrivals, we are um, providing interpretation training for those who would like to be interpreters um, and translators. So those are just a few things that we are doing here in Michigan. Thank you, Carmen. And I wanna note that Geneva's question also addressed uh, the International's Network. So Jenna, if you could chime in on how translation and interpretation companies could support uh, programs that you run. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I think the, the best way to support would be in helping schools connect with families and be able to communicate 
with the families. Um, you know, as I mentioned in my presentation, our schools have lots of different languages being spoken in them, and it's just not possible to hire staff that speak every single language that's spoken in the school. Um, and so we, our schools often do use translanguage services in order to call home and then also to support during meetings and parent-teacher conferences, um, but that would definitely be a great way to support schools who are doing this work. Fantastic, thank you, Jenna. Um, those are all the questions that I see in the queue now. Of course, I have a couple of questions more for the panel, and I encourage those of you who are listening on the, listening in on this webinar to share your questions and also your experiences for the benefit of this larger group. Um, Jenna, turning back to you now, uh, we talked largely about the pandemic in the early days when almost everyone was doing distance learning but how have things changed during this past year where there's been a bit more hybrid instruction, more in-person instruction? What are you seeing and hearing from teachers around the country now? Um, do you mean as it pertains to just digital literacy in general? Um, so, you know, I, I think we can all agree that the transition back into in-person has been really difficult. Um, and one of the things that we're seeing is that um, students are really attached to their devices in a good way, right? Because they've learned to use them to complete their tasks and to engage in their projects when they're supposed to be using those tools. But the, the flip side of that is that we're seeing that students are almost using their devices as a crutch. Um, and so it's really interesting in in-person classes where students are communicating through their devices, um, but communicating in person, there's been a slower shift back to that, which I find fascinating. Um, and then the other thing that I wanna mention is asynchronous learning, right? So using digital tools to provide students with asynchronous access to school. Um, you know, during the pandemic, students were absent for a lot of different reasons, but students have always been absent for a lot of different reasons. And the pandemic really created a, a, a good opportunity for schools to learn how to shift instru instruction to be more hybrid or also to just create extra opportunities for students to access their work online. And we're finding that now that teachers are more comfortable with kind of creating two different lessons or two mm -hmm. different ways for students to engage in the classroom, that students who are absent are still able to keep up with their work. And so then when they come back, right, if they've been sick, if they had work, if they had something else going on with their family, when they come back in, it's easier for them to understand what's going on because they haven't actually missed so much. That's really fascinating. Uh, just as a quick follow-up, Jenna, do you then see the hybrid or asynchronous opportunities as something that will continue after the pandemic? I definitely, I hope so. Um, I mean, I think it's, right, access to school in general is an equity issue, right? And so we're always trying to figure out ways to make sure that students have access to school. And now that people are used to getting their classes online and teachers are used to creating those types of lessons. Um, I personally hope that 
teachers will continue to do that. And that's what we're seeing. And also students will say, students are emailing their teachers and saying, you know, miss, I'm gonna be absent tomorrow. Can you post what's gonna be going on on Google Classroom so that I, I can do it? Um, and teachers and students are doing that. And it's really amazing to see. Fantastic, thank you, Jenna. Um, there's a chat exchange happening um, about older immigrants. And I wonder, Carmen, if you could speak a little bit uh, about your response for seniors who are seeking digital skills training. Yes, thank you. So, so there are programs that are um, limited by age. We do have a senior program that also provides English language skills, but the Office of Global Michigan's the allowed program is open to, um, to everyone. We have children as well as parents and grandparents in class. Um, they all learn together. And, and I think this is, this is wonderful because like I said, our funding uh, shows that families do like to learn together and they do learn better. And they're able to touch different subjects that otherwise probably will not discuss in the family, such as uh, cyberbullying and um, other issues. Carmen, for, for other state refugee programs, resettlement agencies that want to do something similar to what Michigan has done, um, what, could, what could you say, share about the um, funding opportunities that are available to do this, if anything? <laughs> um, I really do not know the answer to, to this question. Our program is funded to, through the Office of uh, Refugee Resettlement. So I will say probably reach out to them. We, we are working on expanding. We're serving refugees uh, who have been in U.S. up to three years. However, we're working on, on expanding that to those who are, um, have been in U.S. longer than that. Yes, absolutely. And um, one thing to applaud the Office of Refugee Resettlement for is the uh, flexible policies that they issued during the pandemic to allow for some funding to be used towards digital access. Um, all right, let's see if there are any other questions in the chat. Okay, I am not seeing any others. Um, as we begin to wrap up, we have just a, a few minutes left in any case. Uh, I wanna give each of our speakers an opportunity to share any um, concluding thoughts. Uh, so if you wanna take a moment to think about that, I do see a note from um, other colleagues in Michigan, her sharing that uh, it, the funding was through a competitive grant program through the Wilson Fish TANF grant. Um, and it wasn't specifically for digital literacy. So there may not be, there most certainly is not uh, a one answer for the funding question. I'm sure that many foundations are also interested in supporting digital access, so that's another opportunity to consider. But as I noted, as we're beginning to wrap up, I'll um, go in this order. Jisoo, Carmen, and Jenna, if you would share any closing thoughts. Thank you for giving us space to share some closing thoughts. I think I'll just reiterate a couple of things that I said in my initial uh, remarks, right? You know, at the end, the digital divide can sometimes seem like a technical uh, challenge, right? We just buy laptops, we buy hotspots, we build the you know fiber networks, 
we provide the wireless access and then check mission accomplished right but no we also have to think about the other side of the story the people behind the technology how do we meet their needs how do we actively support them in using the technology in ways that we want them to you know to facilitate transformative learning experiences to include them in our communities etc you know a fun story that i like to tell is i tried to get my mom to use online banking systems for the longest time right it's not enough that she has access to one of these to you know access uh, that tool right i have to be there i have to help her i have to guide her through right that technical innovation had to be met with the human challenge like that uh, strategies to overcome the human challenge to uh you know make her use the tool in ways that we i wanted her to right so when we're thinking about closing the digital divide, um the question that i like to ask of the field is let's not think about digital divide as just a technical challenge. Let's think about who we need to support actively in overcoming their adoption barriers and think about how, what was the role that each sector can play in you know, bridging that gap. Thank you, Jisoo. Um, your story about you and your mom reminded me of many a time when I FaceTimed with my mom to look at her keyboard to help her do something. So yes, it's that personal touch, uh, the training, the navigator that really makes a difference. All right, I think I said uh, Jisoo Carmen, then Jenna, so Carmen. Yeah, so it is really great to see the work done to remove uh, digital gaps for refugee families. Oftentimes, we see reverse role, like Jisoo just said, um, because children learn faster, they have access to um, digital learning maybe sooner through schools than their parents, and we see them often translating for parents at uh, banks or sometimes even doctor appointments. So to see families um, and, and, and adults, especially and seniors as well, um, have access to digital learning and digital skills. I think it's great and um, looking forward to continuing to do this work in Michigan. Thank you, Carmen. We're all learning quite a lot from the work that you've done there. Jenna, closing thoughts. Yeah, I think my closing thoughts are really connected to what Jisoo and Carmen just shared, which is that um, you know, a digital tool is great, but it's just a tool if it's not contextualized in a deeper meaning and in a real world context. Um, and, you know, with any type of learning, when students are learning anything at all, whether it's social studies or science or, um, you know, how to use Adobe or how to speak English, if it's not contextualized into some real world meaning, they're not going to be motivated to learn it. And, they either won't learn it or it will take them a really long time to learn it. So when we're trying to support our students in schools, really starting from the place of why am I teaching what I'm teaching? Why do students need to know this? And how can I design my curriculum so that they see the deeper meaning in it and that it's connected to things that they're going to need when they graduate? And the same is true for anything that you're teaching, but especially digital literacy. Absolutely. This is not an academic or theoretical point. This is a very practical, real life, real time kind of skill to have. Well, I want to thank uh, all of the panelists again for your time, your attention, for sharing your expertise, and all of the participants for your time and attention, as well as your questions and overall engagement. 
as far as my closing thoughts, it's really a call to action. If you are in the education, immigrant integration, or telecommunications field, let's think together about ways to build bridges so that we are modernizing our service systems and reaching the most vulnerable populations, including children of immigrants and immigrants. Thank you. Have a wonderful day.